This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. A couple of announcements before we begin. First of all, this is the second anniversary of Once Upon a Crime. I can't believe it's already been two years since I first launched the show on June 9th, 2016. It's been an amazing journey and one I couldn't have predicted when I wrote those first three episodes in the series Lost and Found. Since then, the show has been downloaded over 7 million times. That's really unbelievable. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening, telling others about the show, posting ratings and reviews, interacting with me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and just continuing to come along with me each week as I have the privilege of sharing true crime stories with you. There is so much more in store as we wrap up Season 2 and launch Season 3. Lots of extras, surprises, and new content coming your way. I can't wait to share it all with you. While it's been so much fun and I've enjoyed every minute of producing a weekly podcast these last two years, I'm not going to lie, I'm a bit exhausted. To be honest, I don't ever really have a day off, and vacations are pretty much non-existent except the traveling I've done for the podcast, which has been a blast. But in order for me to keep this podcast at the quality level I want it to be, and to be able to work on other projects that I've been planning, extra content for listeners and more, I need a little bit of time to catch my breath and then get ahead of the workload a bit. So to that end, I've decided to take a short break from producing the weekly podcast. But don't worry, it truly is a short break. So this week will be the last of the season two shows. And I'll be back with new regular episodes for Season 3 on July 2nd. But you know I won't be able to stay away completely. So you can look forward to at least one, and probably two bonus episodes during the month of June. Stay subscribed so you don't miss them. On this second anniversary show, you'll hear some greetings and messages from listeners, as well as some of my podcaster friends. Make sure you jot down the names of their podcasts if you're looking for some more content to fill your ears with during my hiatus. You won't be disappointed. There are some fantastic podcasts represented. Also, don't forget, I'll be at the Potter and Love Convention in New Orleans, August 10th through 12th. This is the first podcast conference for listeners by listeners. I'll be doing a live show as well as some panels and meet and greets while there. There'll be a promo with all the details at the end of this episode. I hope to see you there. Without any further delay, let me tell you about today's episode. This week, we'll continue the series, Infamous Locales, with another true crime story from the infamous Cecil Hotel. Last week, I shared with you all the tragic, mysterious, and deadly tales from the opening of the downtown Los Angeles Hotel in 1927, until the time that serial killer Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, became its most infamous guest in 1984-85. This week, I'll continue the history of the Cecil Hotel beginning with the second known serial killer to have inhabited the Cecil while committing his terrible crimes in the early 1990s. Then I'll give you an extra bonus episode, part three, where I will relate the strange and tragic story of a young college student who went missing from the Cecil Hotel in 2013. This is chapter four of Infamous Locales, The Cecil Hotel, part two. I'm Mark. I'm Yolanda. And we're not perfect or functional. The podcast. Happy two-year anniversary, Esther. You're our inspiration. Congrats on two great years of storytelling, and thanks for all the support you've shown us. Keep podding, girl. Hi, this is Pernilla from True Crime Sweden. I just wanted to say congratulations on your two years of podcasting, Esther. I had to look back in my podcast app, and I actually listened to the very first episode of Once Upon a Crime on September 29th, 2016. So I've been listening almost since the beginning, and I never miss an episode. Keep up the good work, Esther, and congratulations again from your biggest fan in Sweden. Beginning in early spring 1991, women began to disappear in Austria. On March 7th, Alfreda Schrempf, a sex worker, disappeared from her usual corner in Graz. In one month's time, four more women who worked in the sex trade industry would disappear in Vienna. On April 8th, 
Sylvia Zagler vanished from her usual corner in the city. The next two women disappeared in rapid succession. Sabine Moitzi went missing on April 16th. Her husband made a report when she didn't come home as usual. Sabine worked in a bakery during the day, but unknown to even her husband, she'd become addicted to heroin and to support her habit, secretly began trading sex for money in the evenings. Less than two weeks later, on April 28th, Regina Prem disappeared on her walk back to her corner from a nearby hotel after meeting a customer. The last woman, Karen Erglu, disappeared on May 7th. The first body was discovered on May 20th. 25-year-old Sabine Moitzi's body was found outside of town in the Vienna woods. She was naked except for the leotard she'd been wearing that was pushed up around her shoulders. Her body was positioned face down in the dirt, with her legs open and her backside facing up, deliberately positioned as if to expose and humiliate the victim. An autopsy would conclude that Sabine had died as a result of strangulation. Her killer had used her own pantyhose and had tied a succession of elaborate knots in the fabric. She was still wearing her jewelry, and her purse and other clothing were found scattered in a wide circle around her body. However, her keys and identification were missing from among the items. The killer had not tried to bury or more than symbolically conceal the body. A bit of dirt and a few leaves and tree branches were scattered over her body, but not enough to hide her from anyone who might pass by in the darkly wooded area. Three days later, on May 23rd, the second of the missing women was found. Karen Araglu, who disappeared on May 7th, was found 10 miles away from where she had last been seen, and deeper into the woods than Sabine. She had blunt force trauma to her head, and had been beaten. Her leotard had been used as a ligature in the same way that Sabine's had been, with the same type of elaborate knots. She was also found lying face down, with her jewelry left in place. A tree branch was placed over the back of her head, but she had not been buried either. One possible clue was found at the second crime scene, a torn tip from the finger of a surgical glove. The media picked up the story, calling the unknown perpetrator the Vienna Woods Killer. The other missing women were feared to have suffered the same fate, as they had all disappeared from the same neighborhood in Vienna. The discovery of the two murdered women was shocking for a couple of reasons. First, homicides in Vienna were rare. In the previous year, only 30 murders had occurred in the city with a population of 1.5 million people. Secondly, even in the red-light district of Vienna, violent crime was an anomaly. Prostitution is legal in Vienna, and is regulated by a series of rules and licenses required to conduct business as a sex worker. Women were independent contractors, not subject to enslavement or abuse from a pimp. The work was no more dangerous than any other profession conducted amongst strangers, and the homicide rate for women working in the sex trade was no higher than amongst the general population. As these murders were being investigated, other previously unsolved cases came to mind. In September 1990, Blanca Bakova was found murdered and strangled with a ligature and left along a riverbank near Prague. On October 26th, Brunhilde Mosser disappeared from Graz. On December 5th, Heidi Marie Hammerer went missing from Bregenz. Her body was found on New Year's Eve in the woods outside of town. She appeared to have been attacked and killed elsewhere, redressed and then dragged out into the woods. Several red fibers were found on her clothes and body fibers that did not match any of her possessions. Less than a week later, Brunhilde Mosser's body was discovered in a stream bed. She'd been stabbed and possibly strangled. She'd been missing for over two months, and the state of decomposition the body was found in made it difficult to determine precisely how she'd died. She was also found naked, face down with all her jewelry intact, and covered with a couple of tree branches. It was two months after Brunhilde was discovered that Elfrida Schrempf went missing and was yet to be found. She would not be found until October 1991, a full year and a half later. Only her skeleton remained, with her jewelry still intact. Because there were no signs of bullet or knife wounds or injuries from blunt force trauma, the forensic pathologist would suspect that she had also been strangled. A retired police detective from Salzburg, August Schenner, had been following the news about the murdered missing women with interest. On May 31st, a week after Karen Erglu's body was found, 
he called the Vienna investigators to provide information about a suspect he believed they should be looking at, one Johann Jack Unterweger. Schenner first heard about Jack Unterweger in the spring of 1975 while working on a 1973 murder case. 25-year-old Marika Horvath was found in a lake north of Salzburg, drowned. Because of her state of undress, it was suspected she'd been sexually assaulted. Her hands were bound with a necktie. Schenner had diligently worked to find Marika's killer, but the case had gone cold. Then, two years later, he heard that the Salzburg DA was prosecuting a 24-year-old man for a string of assaults against women and the murder of another in December of 1974. Schenner decided to find out more about Jack Unterweger. From here on, I'll refer to him as Jack, or J.U., to make it easier on myself and on your ears. Jack was born on August 6, 1950, in Graz, Austria. His mother, Theresia Unterweger, by all accounts, was a wild child who defied her parents and left home as a teen. She took jobs as a waitress and a barmaid and started committing crimes like theft and fraud in her youth. Theresia met an American soldier and became pregnant by him in late 1949. She would claim that her son's father was an American soldier from New Jersey named Jack Becker. She named her son Johann, but called him Jack after his father, an unusual name in Austria. While pregnant, Theresia was jailed for fraud, but Jack was born after her release. Theresia bounced around with the young boy for the first two years of his life, but was then arrested again, and Jack went to live with his maternal grandfather and step-grandmother in Carinthia, an alpine village located in South Austria. Jack would characterize his early life as one of hardship and violence. He said that his mother was a prostitute who'd abandoned him, and that his grandfather was a violent alcoholic. He had had little to eat and only threadbare clothes and lived in an ill-equipped shack. But the only thing he'd ever wanted, he would recount to all who heard his sad tale, was the love of his mother. This he would never receive, he said. Schenner found that Jack's criminal record began at the age of 16, when he was arrested for theft. He continued committing even more serious crimes through his teen years, including robbery, car theft, and burglary. In 1970, at the age of 20, he abducted a 16-year-old girl and tried to force her into prostitution. He would serve jail sentences of various lengths, be released, and then continue committing more crimes throughout his early life. Between 1973 and 1974, several young women filed complaints against him for assault. In May 1974, a young woman said she met Jack a good-looking young man driving a fancy sports car who offered her a ride home. Instead, he drove her outside the city limits to a wooded area where his car got stuck in the mud. She now became suspicious of his motives and tried to leave on foot. He then hit her, knocking her down before sexually assaulting her. She described that during the assault, he had pushed her face down into the dirt and tied her hands behind her back. He then raped her in his car. She was saved when another car appeared, and she ran to it and jumped in, asking to be taken to the police. J.U. was arrested and jailed, and there he swallowed a handful of prescription pain pills he'd smuggled into his cell. He was taken to the Salzburg Psychiatric Clinic, treated, and then released. He moved to Tyrol, where he worked as a waiter and a gas station attendant before being hired as a radio disc jockey. On December 11, 1974, Jack was in Germany in the company of a young woman named Barbara Schultz. Barbara was his girlfriend and one of the many young women he'd groomed over the years to serve him. Jack was not without charm, and he'd been able to manipulate many young, impressionable women and coerce them into doing his bidding. Some gave him money, sex, or a place to stay. Others, at his urging, had gone into sex work, sharing their earnings with Jack. Barbara was infatuated with Jack and would do whatever he asked. So on that cold December night, Jack and Barbara took a road trip. He drove Barbara to her parents' house, where he told her to enter and grab money and other valuables. When they arrived, the house was locked, and her parents were asleep. Jack then came up with Plan B. They needed money, so he told Barbara to find someone to rob. 
Barbara saw her 18-year-old neighbor and friend, Margaret Schaefer, walking home from a night out bowling. Barbara approached Margaret, and they exchanged pleasantries. Barbara then asked her if she needed to be home right away. She said no, so Barbara invited her to go for a ride with her and her boyfriend. Jack drove an American sports car, a Mustang. That impressed the young girl. She agreed. They drove for a bit before Jack pulled over on a dark street. Before Margaret knew what was happening, Jack grabbed her and told her to cooperate and nothing would happen to her. Margaret, of course, was shocked, not understanding why Barbara's boyfriend was attacking her. He tied her hands with the belt from Barbara's coat and went through her purse. He found that she had only 30 marks, or about $12. He demanded more money, and she said she had 100 marks at home. They drove back, and Barbara snuck in and grabbed the money from her friend's room, along with some of her clothes. She returned to the car, and Jack drove them out of town. Margaret was still tied up and face down on the floor of the car in the back seat. Jack drove out to the woods and pulled over along a forest road. He then untied Margaret and told her to take her clothes off. She refused, and he struck her in the face. Margaret pleaded with Barbara to make him stop and let her go. Barbara said that there was nothing she could do. Jack pulled Margaret outside the car and retied her hands. He then pulled a metal bar from the trunk and began pushing Margaret into the woods. Barbara remained in the car. Jack returned several minutes later, with the metal bar covered in blood. There's no way she can betray us now, he told her, before driving off. Margaret was found three weeks later, naked, her body sprinkled with dirt and leaves. She'd been beaten on the head and strangled. Her bra was knotted tightly around her neck. Salzburg Detective Schenner discovered that Jack had been released from a Wells jail in January 1973, and that the necktie used to bind Marika Horvath's hands had been purchased in Wells two months later. Jack loved to wear fine clothes, and this tie was just one of a few sold in an exclusive men's clothing shop in Wells. Schenner now had a link to the Horvath murder. In 1975, Jack was tried for violent offenses against four women, convicted, and sentenced to three years in prison. Schenner attended the trial. Hearing the testimony, he knew he could make a case against him for the murder of Marika Horvath. But the following year, Jack was tried in Austria under treaty with Germany for the murder of Margaret Schaefer. Barbara Schultz confessed to being an accomplice and gave up all the details. Upon hearing this, Jack also confessed. He admitted to the murder in court, but said that his past history of neglect and abandonment by his mother led to Margaret's murder. I envisioned my mother in front of me, and I killed her, he testified. He was sentenced to life in prison. Because of his life sentence, the DA did not want to file charges against Jack for the murder of Marika Horvath, and so the case stalled. He was already sentenced to serve life in prison, the DA told Schenner, so nothing would be gained by taking on another investigation and trial. While in prison, Jack Unterweger began to write poems, essays, and his own autobiography, which he titled Purgatory. He'd begun a diary in 1974, a habit he would continue for the rest of his life. In prison, he completed correspondence courses in writing and literature. He began penning children's stories and submitting them for publication. Many of them were broadcast on a radio program for children during his incarceration. He began to gain recognition as a writer, and publishers became interested in his story and his autobiographical manuscript. Purgatory told the tale of his early days of deprivation and abuse by his mother and grandfather. He also described coming to the realization during his incarceration that being abandoned by his mother had led to his life of crime. The goal of the Austrian correctional system was to reform its prisoners, helping them to leave a life of crime and become productive members of society. To this end, prison officials encouraged Jack's writing career. Even though the forensic psychologist who had examined Jack during his murder trial reported to the court that he was a, quote, emotionally impoverished, sexually sadistic psychopath with narcissistic and histrionic tendencies, and also called him a, quote, incorrigible perpetrator who, if ever released, will certainly kill again, 
unquote. Many people, including intellectuals and government officials, began campaigning for Jack's release. He was held up as the poster boy for successful prison reform, and news reports and scholarly articles were dedicated to his story. Jack had grown up poor, abused, and without moral guidance, they said. In prison, he had, through his writing, come to realize how his early life had affected him negatively, and he'd gained understanding and now was deeply remorseful for his terrible crime. Some saw photos and videos of the small, delicately featured Jack Unterweger. He was five foot six inches tall, with blonde hair and blue eyes, and boyish good looks. And they decided that he couldn't be dangerous. Besides, he was obviously reformed now, they believed. He was given special privileges in prison, including being allowed to attend the premiere of his play, End Station Prison, at the Vienna People's Theater, where he was treated like a celebrity. The editor of a renowned literary magazine began a campaign for Jack's release in 1985, after he'd served only eight years in prison. Letters to Austria's president were written, asking him to pardon the playwright. The president refused and also reminded Jack's supporters that under Austrian law, a person serving a life sentence must complete at least 15 years in prison before parole can even be considered. At a parole hearing in April 1990, the court-appointed psychiatrist returned a favorable report after examining Jack. She predicted Jack's successful return to society and specifically stated that his writing career would give him an outlet to channel his energy. On May 23, 1990, after only 15 years, four months behind bars, and at the age of 39, Jack Unterweger was released from prison. After his release, Jack became an instant celebrity. His autobiography was already a bestseller. People were fascinated by the story of the young boy who, grown up abused and abandoned, had become a violent criminal and then been reformed through art in prison. In 1988, a film version of Purgatory was released. He was interviewed for magazine articles and was a frequent guest on radio programs and talk shows. One of the most heart-wrenching portions of his autobiography, and one he often repeated for the media, was his search for his mother. He tells of traveling to Salzburg, and while he doesn't find her, he succeeds in tracking down her sister Anna. Anna, he discovers, is a sex worker in Salzburg. They connect and he describes receiving for the first time the love and affection he never experienced from his mother. He then is devastated when, soon after, his Aunt Anna is murdered by her, quote, last customer. Jack even became a talk show host. On his show, he often advocated for prison reform. He also worked for ORF, Austria's public broadcasting company, where he interviewed police officers, investigators, and others as a crime reporter. So in 1991, when Detective Schenner began to learn about the missing and murdered women in Austria, he thought of Jack Unterweger. He pulled the case files from the previous murders and compared them. There were too many similarities for him to ignore, and so he passed the tip along to investigators in Vienna. Schenner shared the timeline he'd put together. Jack had been released in May 1990. Four months later, women began to go missing. They had all been found murdered in the woods and strangled with articles of their own clothing. At first, Vienna police considered it unbelievable. Jack was well known to them. He often hung out with the cops to get interviews for his crime reports. He even interviewed the sex workers themselves for radio pieces he was working on about the red light district in Vienna. He was considered to be one of the literary set. Since his release from prison, he'd published two novels and produced two plays. He'd been awarded grants from Austria's Ministry of Education and Culture. He lived in a big apartment in an exclusive area of the city, wore expensive clothes, and drove around in a sports car with vanity plates that read W. Jack 1. He was surrounded by beautiful young women, and at least one always accompanied him at red carpet events and soirees. He was not someone they would suspect of being a serial murderer of women. As implausible as it seemed, they decided to humor the old detective and put Jack under surveillance. They followed him for several days, and as they suspected, noticed nothing out of the ordinary. He seemed to be living the life of a reporter and writer, at home in the mornings, 
sometimes sitting and reading in neighborhood cafes, or meeting others for drinks or dinner in the city. But as they would later discover, nothing much got past Jack Unterweger. It's believed that he noticed he was being watched, and that may have been the reason he decided to leave town soon afterwards. On June 10th, Jack visited the chief of police in his office in Vienna, something he'd done often as a crime reporter. Jack informed him that he would be traveling to Los Angeles to work on a story about crime and law enforcement in that city. He also hoped to meet some people to pitch an American film version of his autobiography. On June 11, 1991, Jack arrived in Los Angeles, landing at LAX in what he perceived to be an American outfit. White snakeskin cowboy boots, a white cowboy hat, and a loud sports coat with a flowered pattern. He had a passerby take several pictures of him with his camera while he was still in the airport. He then rented a car with a fake driver's license and drove to 7th and Main to check in to the Cecil Hotel. It's long been a legend that Jack Unterweger requested room 1402 when he registered at the Cecil Hotel, because this was the room Richard Ramirez occupied in 1984 and 85, while committing murders throughout Los Angeles. Although that cannot be confirmed with any certainty, because J.U. was an avid crime researcher and a big fan of American culture, it certainly seems possible. Why pick the Cecil out of so many inexpensive hotels in the area? especially when it was his first trip to Los Angeles, and he otherwise would not be familiar with many lodgings. In any case, that is where he landed, paying $25 per night for his room. He said he'd be staying for five weeks, most likely the amount of time he was permitted to stay in the U.S. on a tourist visa. The Cecil was also conveniently located two blocks from the Los Angeles Police Department's central facilities, the downtown headquarters for patrol officers, One block in the opposite direction, 7th Street, was a popular stroll for sex workers to be picked up in cars and taken to nearby cheap hotels and motels. Of course, J.U. would probably say he'd pick the Cecil because of his planned research on prostitution in the city and the LAPD's response to it. But first, he planned to set up meetings about his movie project. He met with Frances Schoenberger, a Hollywood correspondent for Stern magazine. He told her he planned to produce a radio segment about the dark side of L.A. He also wanted to write a piece titled Strong Women of L.A., but that seemed to be just a ruse to interview Cher, one of his favorite female actresses. Schoenberger told him that Cher would most likely not agree to speak with an unknown journalist. He also wanted to meet writer Charles Bukowski, interview LAPD Chief Daryl Gates about the Rodney King case, and get an interview with Zsa Zsa Gabor. When none of these proposed meetings panned out, J.U. took a portable recorder into the streets and interviewed sex workers working near the Cecil. He did, however, succeed at one goal he'd set for himself, to secure a ride-along with the LAPD. A ride-along is a request made by a civilian to ride with an officer in their police car during their regular patrol. Currently, a request for a ride-along with the LAPD requires permission well in advance and the requester must go through proper channels. In 1991, however, the process must have been much more informal. J.U. arrived at the central facility to request a ride-along with an officer on June 24, 1991. The following day, he returned and was allowed to ride with Sergeant Steve Staples during his entire four-hour shift. He told Staples he was writing for an Austrian police journal about crime in L.A. That was a lie. He didn't write for a police journal, but probably thought the officer would look on him more favorably if he was connected to Austria's police department. J.U. was always working an angle and trying to make a good impression, or what he thought would impress. He asked Staples about his work with the LAPD, and specifically about the types of crimes he most often encountered in his job. He also asked several pointed questions about how the LAPD processed someone who was arrested for a serious crime. He did not, however, ask one question about prostitution, Staples recalled. When they returned to the police headquarters, J.U. took several pictures, as he had also done while on patrol with Staples. He asked some of the officers if he could take their picture, but Staples noticed 
that he only asked the female officers for pictures, none of the men. Three days after J.U.'s ride-along, a young sex worker named Irene Rodriguez was found murdered. Irene was 33 years old and the mother of four. She'd left her family in Texas and traveled to Los Angeles and decided to stay. She was addicted to drugs and fell into sex work to support her habit. Irene was found in the parking lot of a trucking company on Meyer Street in Hollenbeck on the east side of Los Angeles. She'd been left under a big rig trailer with her bra knotted tightly around her neck. She was nude except for a sock and a t-shirt. A week before Irene was found, another sex worker who had recently been working at the corner of 7th and Town, about six blocks from the Cecil, was found dead in a vacant parking lot behind the Girl Scout Center on 7th and Fickett. 20-year-old Shannon Exley was found nude, except for a t-shirt and a pair of socks. She'd been strangled with her own bra. The parking lot was surrounded by a cluster of eucalyptus trees, unusual for downtown Los Angeles, but it would have provided cover for the perpetrator, especially in the dark of night. Now with both Shannon and Irene's murders so similar in M.O., detectives believe they had a single perpetrator targeting women. They wondered how soon it would be before he struck again. Jack Unterweger had a couple of problems while visiting L.A. First, on June 20th, he'd had to return his rental car to the agency to exchange it for another because the windshield had received a crack on the passenger side. This was the result, J.U. said, from a rock flying into it. Coincidentally, this was later on the same day that Shannon Exley was found strangled. She was also found to have a bruise on her forehead. Then on July 2nd, J.U. checked out of the Cecil Hotel. He complained that someone had broken into his room and stolen some of his things. He checked into the Sunset Orange Motel, located, appropriately, on the south of Sunset Boulevard and Orange Street in Hollywood. On July 3rd, Sherry Long was staying at the Hollywood Vine Motel and checked out for the last time at 11 p.m. to head back to the Strip to pick up her next customer. Many sex workers made the motel their base of operations, renting a room hourly, checking in and out during the evening. She hadn't returned after 11 p.m. It wasn't until July 11th that Sherry's decomposed body was found, high up in the Malibu Hills, many miles from Sunset Strip. Her body was partially hidden under a shrub. She was almost fully clothed. Her T-shirt was pushed up over her breasts, but her bra had been removed and was knotted tightly around her neck. Now there were three dead girls, all found to have been strangled with their own bra, and with a series of similar knots. In addition, the L.A. Sheriff's Department Crime Lab found other similarities. Each of the three bras had been dismantled, one strap or piece of fabric cut from the garment. There was no apparent reason for this extra step, investigators noted. Each had incisions in the same place on the garment, and each was found still around the victim's neck and still knotted very tightly in place. They were definitely looking for one perpetrator for all three murders, they concluded. In late July, just a few days after Sherry Long's body was discovered, J.U. checked out of the Sunset Orange Motel and flew home to Austria. On August 4th, four months after she disappeared from Vienna and a few days after J.U. returned home, Sylvia Zagler's body was finally discovered in the Vienna woods. It was badly decomposed, and Sylvia had to be identified through dental records. She was found positioned face down, and no clothing was found on her. They believed that her clothes, as well as any ligature, may have disintegrated or been carried off by animals. In mid-August, a woman read in the paper that Jack Unterweger was to give a literary reading at a venue near her home. She decided to attend to confront him. Her name was Charlotte, and she had been stepdaughter to Jack's grandfather, Ferdinand Weiser. Ferdinand had married her mother, Maria Springer, and Charlotte and her brother Fritz had grown up in the home where Jack also lived for a time with his grandfather. Charlotte had heard of Jack's tales of abuse and hardship and felt that enough was enough. He was a liar and she could prove it. Charlotte was older than Jack and remembered the little boy well. Ferdinand, she said, 
had not been abusive to him, but had loved and spoiled him. Her stepfather had been a woodworker, and when Jack wanted a new toy, he'd make a special wooden car or truck for him with his own two hands, she recalled. Jack said that he'd lived alone with his grandfather, who was always drunk, and had left him to his own devices. But Charlotte says that her mother lived in the home at the time Jack was there, and took care of him like her own child until he was six. Jack became more difficult at that age, lying and stealing and wreaking havoc in the home. In this way, he took after his mother, Theresia, Charlotte explained. Theresia was pretty, but was manipulative and sneaky. They'd lived together as step-siblings, and Charlotte had witnessed this firsthand. Theresia even stole from their schoolhouse, but no one had suspected her at the time. She looked and acted sweet and innocent, much the same way Jack tried to portray himself. Charlotte's mother left their cottage and took her daughter with her, leaving the out-of-control Jack alone with his grandfather. They only lived alone together for two months. Then the Children's Welfare Department placed Jack in the custody of Ferdinand's sister. Could Ferdinand have treated Jack harshly in the two months he lived with him, thus creating the tales Jack spun about his alcoholic abusive grandfather? Perhaps, Charlotte concedes. He may have been angry after his wife had left him due to Jack's antics and may have begun to drink in Jack's presence. But his childhood in no way resembled his so-called autobiography, she insists. So armed with a folder full of old photos, pictures of Jack between the ages of two and eight, playing with his toys, holding his grandfather's hand, and wearing his first communion suit at the age of eight, she arrived at the reading. She walked up to him as he was seated with a group of women. Hansi, she said, calling him by his childhood nickname, I'm here to say that what you wrote about your grandfather is a malicious lie. Jack cut her off. I'm sorry, I don't think I know you, he said. Of course you do. I'm your Aunt Lottie, she protested. No, I don't. Now please leave us, she retorted, growing angry. He got up and moved close enough to speak to her without being overheard. Be quiet, or something may happen to you, he said menacingly. She remembered that he'd been convicted of murder and realized that she should take his threat seriously. She walked away, hoping he would not try and seek her out. In October, Rudolf Prem, the husband of Regina Prem, who'd gone missing on April 28th and had not yet been found, received several anonymous phone calls. The messages relayed were taunting, menacing, and somewhat poetic in nature. When the figure eight at the zenith stands, then I'll tell you where your wife lies one said. Another, to eleven, I have carried out the just punishment. They all lie in the place of atonement, facing downward towards Hades, because otherwise it would have been an outrage. While the caller mentioned eleven victims, only six bodies that had been found were believed to be linked to the same killer, seven if you counted the still-missing Regina Prem. Who, then, were the other three he alluded to? As 1992 dawned, police were still stumped as to who their serial murderer was. Then in early January, they got a break in the case. A 19-year-old sex worker, we'll call Joanna, told of an encounter she'd had with a customer in October 1990. She had been standing on her usual corner when a nice-looking blonde man in a BMW pulled up and spoke to her. He asked her how much she charged to have sex in the car, and she relayed the price. He then told her he was a well-known journalist and didn't want to be seen paying for sex and wanted to drive a ways out of the city. She told him it would cost him more, and he agreed. He drove out to the country, about five miles out of the city, before turning off onto a road that took them into the woods. He asked her to get undressed and said he'd like to cuff her hands behind her back. She complied. She wasn't afraid, but then he told her he wanted her to act like she was in fear. It was then she began to feel the first niggling of real fear. He had sex with her from behind, and it hurt a lot, she said, but she didn't protest. He was mumbling weird phrases that she couldn't decipher, and she finally screamed really loudly, which caused him to stop. He took the handcuffs off her and drove her back to town. She'd remembered another detail. He had a vanity license plate on his BMW that spelled W Jack 1. She was shown a photo of Jack Unterweger. She identified him as the man who had driven her out into the woods. Her encounter with him had taken place nine days 
before Brunhilde Moser disappeared, just a block away from Joanna's corner. Detectives started pulling all the information on the files of the six murder cases they were working, plus the one missing woman. Vienna requested an arrest warrant for Jack Unterweger from the DA as a suspect in the six murders and the one presumed murder of Regina Prem. The request was denied for lack of evidence. The DA needed more evidence against J.U. before he'd issue a warrant. A special commission was formed to conduct an investigation across police jurisdictions. Through receipts from hotels, car rental agencies, and restaurants, they began to piece together their suspect's movements. To investigate his movements while in California, they contacted the LAPD Homicide Division to tell them about their suspected murderer and ask for any unsolved cases during the time that J.U. was known to be in their city. Detectives working the three homicide cases of Shannon Exley, Irene Rodriguez, and Sherry Long saw an immediate connection and began working with Vienna to share information. They were able to determine that J.U. had been in Graz in October when Brunhilde was murdered, and again in March when Alfreda was killed. He was in Bregenz in December when Heidi Marie was murdered and was identified by eyewitnesses as the man who had been seen with her that night. He'd been wearing a leather jacket and a red scarf. Red fibers had been found on Heidi Marie's body. Receipts also proved that J.U. had been in Prague in September 1990 when Blanca Bakova was murdered. He'd been living in Vienna during the time all four women were taken. It could not be a coincidence, they concluded, that their suspect could be placed near every single one of their unsolved murders. In October 1991, J.U. was interviewed by police about the murders in Austria. He had an explanation for all his movements and alibis for every day in question. However, later they discovered that his alibis could not be corroborated or they were found to be downright lies. He also told police that he didn't drive because he had no driver's license. They knew that it was untrue that he never drove his car. He said that he owned a car with the W Jack 1 license plates, but that friends drove him around in it. He began writing and presenting radio pieces about his unfair treatment by police. He said he was being made a scapegoat and that even reformed criminals such as himself were constantly under suspicion. By February 14th, detectives believed they had enough to charge him with suspicion of murder, and an arrest warrant was issued by the Graz Criminal Court for Jack Unterweger. The next day, he fled to America with his 18-year-old girlfriend, Bianca Mrak. They landed in Miami, Florida, where Jack quickly found the pretty and shapely Bianca, a job as a go-go dancer in a Miami club. He rented a small apartment behind the Miami Beach police station for $315 per month. Ten days after they arrived in Miami, Jack called another one of his girlfriends in Vienna, who he'd continued to keep in contact with. Elizabeth was the assistant to a magazine editor, and she now told Jack that her editor had offered to pay him $10,000 for an on-the-run interview exclusive. Jack, who desperately needed the money, was thrilled. He told her to make the deal, and he'd be in touch. Meanwhile, the editor, Gert Schmidt, contacted the detectives working the case. He'd made a deal with J.U. for an interview, he said, and had gotten an address where to wire the money to him. He shared this with the police. Jack had asked for the advance to be sent to the USA Money Exchange, located at 207 11th Street, Miami Beach, Florida. They set up the sting. His assistant would wire the advance to that pickup location, and they would position officers to apprehend the fugitive. On February 27, 1992, Jack Unterweger was arrested in Miami Beach, Florida, when he arrived at the money exchange. He was taken to a Miami jail, where he quickly told them that he wouldn't fight extradition. He knew that in Austria, unlike the United States, there was no death penalty. He'd already gone to prison for murder once and had been able to find a way out of a life sentence. So he decided to take his chances in his home country to beat this rap as well. On March 12th, LAPD detectives arrived in Miami to interview him about their three murder cases. Hairs had been found stuck to the bumper of the trailer under which Irene Rodriguez's body had been dragged. They arrived with a warrant to take hair and blood samples from their suspect. 
there had been some differences between the murders of the women in Austria and those in Los Angeles, but they were easily explained. There was no nearby woods to take his victims to like in Vienna, so he found convenient substitutes. The lots he left the first two women in had elements that helped him conceal the body, like he'd done in the woods. Trees in one of them, trailers in another. He'd used Braz's ligatures on the American women, but not on most of the women in Austria. Generally, sex workers in Austria went braless and typically wore leotards or pantyhose. These were the garments he used to strangle the Austrian women. It was just a matter of what was most available to him. The ligatures on all the women were tied with the same kind of unusual knots. The LAPD cooperated with the Austrian government, allowing them to extradite J.U. back to his home country. In Austria, unlike the U.S., a citizen could be tried in court for crimes committed anywhere in the world. Because of this, J.U. could be tried for all 11 murders he was suspected of committing, the six in Austria, one in Czechoslovakia, and three in America. And soon, there would be six confirmed victims in Austria. On April 19th, almost exactly a year after Regina Prem went missing, her remains were found in the Vienna woods. She was identified by her jewelry and dental records. Jack Unterweger would be charged with his 11th and final murder. On May 28th, he was returned to Vienna, where he was indicted on 11 counts of murder. On April 20th, 1994, after many delays, Jack Unterweger's murder trial began. The Austrian trial system is very different from that in the U.S. J.U. was able to be charged with the murders in Austria, Czechoslovakia, and in the U.S. in the Austrian court. Detectives from the LAPD would also testify at the trial, and experts in forensics from both Austria, Switzerland, and the U.S. would present evidence. The Austrian judicial system is based on an inquisitional model rather than adversarial like in the U.S. The judge can ask questions and fully take part in investigating the crime as the evidence is presented. The accused can also freely ask questions and make comments during trial proceedings. He can also address the jury and question witnesses. The jury consists of 12 members, but only eight would render a verdict. The other four are alternates. But the verdict only has to be decided by a simple majority, not unanimously as in U.S. court proceedings. Some of the highlights during the trial included testimony from the prison psychologist who had provided the favorable evaluation of J.U. before he was released from prison in May 1990, just four months before the murders began. The prosecution discovered that the details of the prisoner's life were taken directly from his autobiography, Purgatory, and that the psychologist did not conduct her own inquiry to determine if these details were in fact true. The press had already found and interviewed J.U.'s mother, Theresia Strasser was now her name. She showed reporters a picture of her son, calling him her pretty boy, who could never have murdered all those women, but then said that she was offended by what he'd written about her in Purgatory. I was never a whore and I don't have a sister, she said, debunking the story that Jack had often told of his aunt being murdered by, quote, her final customer. Regarding the favorable evaluation, the psychologist also testified that the prison director asked her to try and write nothing negative about J.U. in her report. The prison director had since died, but it was believed that his facility was getting a lot of positive attention for successfully reforming Unterweger and wanted to keep the accolades going. The doctor also admitted that she had not read J.U.'s entire file and had only had two conversations with the inmate for about 30 minutes each. The defense even found Jack's abandoned daughter, Claudia, who came to court as a character witness. Jack, it was discovered, had impregnated a 16-year-old hotel chambermaid in 1970 when he was 20. Soon after she found out she was expecting a child, Jack abandoned her. Charlotte had only met her father for the first time when she was 15 and attended the opening of his play that he was allowed to attend while incarcerated. He continued to correspond with her from prison, but stopped communicating with her soon after he was released from prison. Detectives from Los Angeles were able to testify about their murder investigations that pointed to J.U. as their suspect. They told the jury about his visit to L.A. and that he had been staying at the downtown Cecil Hotel when the first two girls disappeared from that area. 
They had then tracked his movements to the motel on Sunset Boulevard, the area from which the third girl disappeared. They also described the knots in the ligatures used on all three women as being identical and matching those used in the strangulation murders in Austria. Dr. Lynn Harold from the L.A. County Crime Lab further solidified this detail, saying, I have analyzed several hundred cases of ligature strangulation and have never seen ligatures like these. They are extremely unusual and have seven conspicuous similarities. A psychiatrist, Dr. Haller, testified that, quote, Jack Unterweger is legally sane, but mentally abnormal. He is suffering from a deep-reaching narcissistic personality disorder with sadistic tendencies, unquote. In closing arguments, prosecutor Carl Gasser said of J.U.'s crimes, quote, his motive wasn't love or jealousy or money or revenge, but the desire for power. Unterweger takes a sinister pleasure in power, and its summit is the mastery over life and death. Such power gives this deeply disturbed personality a special satisfaction, unquote. On June 28, 1994, Jack Unterweger was found guilty of nine murders by the vote of six to two on each count. On the final two counts of murder, those of Alfreda Schrempf and Regina Prem, they voted not guilty. They explained that due to the state the bodies were discovered in after so much time in the elements, a definitive cause of death could not be determined, so they could not find for guilty. He was sentenced to life in a maximum security prison. Asked for a statement at the end of the verdict and sentencing, he simply replied, I will appeal. Seven hours later, Jack Unterweger was found hanging in his jail cell, dead. He had fashioned a noose made of a thin metal wire and the drawstring from his sweatpants. His last act seeking power and control was that of his own demise. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. There are so many true crime stories that have come out of the Cecil Hotel that this is the first three-part episode ever in the history of Once Upon a Crime. In the final story, I'll tell you about the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb at the Cecil Hotel. But don't worry, you won't have to wait a whole week for the last part. Part three will be released this week as well, and we'll wrap up our second season. Be looking for that in your feed if you're subscribed to Once Upon a Crime. And if you're not, what are you waiting for? It's free to subscribe and can be found on most podcast apps, including iTunes and Stitcher. Subscribing will ensure you never miss an episode. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.